Last message this morning in our series, the Sermon on the Mount, a series I hope has been edifying, has been really encouraging, really challenging for all of you. At least that's how it shapes up. That's how Jesus gives it. And so our prayer is that it has landed accordingly as he intends it. Our passage is from the book of Matthew, chapter 7, verse 28, through chapter 8, verse 1, Matthew 7, 28 through 8, 1. Passage will be on the screen. If you have a Bible, we would encourage you to pull that out and follow along with us. And there are some blue Bibles in some of the seat baskets in front of you. Those are for you as well. If you are able to stand, please stand for the reading of God's word. Matthew chapter 7, starting in verse 28. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority, and not as their scribes. When he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Lord, there's a, a weightiness, I think, whenever we conclude a series. We've heard a lot. We've learned a lot. So, Father, I do pray as we kind of put the button on this series, so to speak, Lord, that you would, you would give us even a couple of themes to walk away with, things that you want to have buried in our hearts that they might continue, as we said, to challenge us and to encourage us. And Lord, I do pray, especially this morning, that you would convince us, Lord, concerning the beauty of Jesus' authority in particular, that we would see and agree that it's such a wonderful thing that the Son of God has the kind of authority that exceeds even that of the scribes. Holy Spirit, work among us in great power. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Authority is not a particularly happy subject in our day. It makes us suspicious. We tend to think of it as something that gets abused. We might even believe, quite simply, that authority is just straight up bad, unless we're talking about personal authority, personal autonomy. When we call someone an authoritarian, it's not a compliment. It's a pejorative, at least in our context. If you're a second grade teacher asking each of your students to pick a favorite word, I, I'm just talking with someone. I, growing up in Southern California, I'm not sure how much of what we did was normal and happened around the rest of the country. Southern California is kind of an odd bird. I mean, we would shuffle into class on Friday mornings in elementary school for project self-esteem, and it meant that a group of 20 or so third graders with billabong shirts and shell necklaces and etnies spent 30 minutes listening to a sock puppet talk about how great we were. So that's what was going on in Southern California. Not sure what was going on nationally or if that made it over to Florida. But one of the things we also did, again, take it or leave it, was that we would often, you know, as a way of kind of building up your vocabulary, we would have a, a word of the year. You know, and usually it's baseball or, or unicorns or balloons or, or something like that. But imagine if one kid said, authority. You would keep your eye on that kid. 
right? If you keep your eye on that kid, I mean, you probably wouldn't be thinking to yourself, man, this, here's a kid that loves discipline and orderliness and you know, everything in its proper, proper place. You'd be, you'd be concerned about a Lord of the Fly situation going on on the playground. And there's a lot of reasons why authority is not a particularly happy subject right now. Authority has been abused. It has been abused by politicians, by bosses, by parents, even clergy, and the Church of Jesus Christ. Abuse that some of you have experienced firsthand. But also, authority gets really messy when we don't believe in capital T, truth. If there's no truth, on what basis can any person or any collection of people say, I or we have authority? In a truth vacuum, the primary, maybe really the only way to ground claims to authority is to grab power and then assert your authority through some kind of force. You may have your truth and I have my truth and I like my truth better and since I have the money and since I have the political influence or the positional power within the company or the military arsenal or whatever, my brand of truth is going to win the day. Or to put it another way, in a truth vacuum, the main way to ground your authority is actually to be the friendly neighborhood authoritarian. <laughs> so it shouldn't surprise us that as we essentially try to decouple ourselves from capital T truth, something akin to authoritarianism is often right behind it, sometimes even welcomed by those who feel adrift within this vacuum. Certainly, capital T, truth, can be and is used in authoritarian ways. But decoupling ourselves from truth doesn't provide the freedom we anticipate. In fact, it tends to make things even worse. What then do we make of Jesus here at the end of chapter 7? Last Sunday, we considered the final appeal in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, the conclusion of his conclusion. And now this morning, we have this narrative addendum from Matthew that when Jesus had finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. So what do we make of this authority? What is it? Where does it come from? And is it cause for skepticism and cynicism in keeping with the spirit of our age? Or is this something that's actually worth celebrating, something that's, that's beautiful? One reflection, and then a question this morning as we put the button on our Sermon on the Mount series, a series... Believe it or not, that we began all the way back at the beginning of October, and here we are. So here's a reflection, the evidence for Jesus' authority, and then the question that will follow. What will you do with it? What will you do with it? So let's start with that reflection. What is the evidence for Jesus' authority? In the first message in this series, we saw that the Sermon on the Mount is actually bookended 
by allusions to Jesus' authority. The beginning of the sermon in Matthew chapter 5, verse 1, we learn that Jesus, desiring to do some teaching, but mindful of the crowds that had begun to follow him, he found a mountain, think more of like a ridge or a, a hilly plateau. He found a mountain where he could sit down and speak. You may recall from our Advent series that the Old Testament narrative is full of mountainous encounters which are regularly associated with divine revelation. Israel's encounter with God at Mount Sinai certainly stands out, especially Moses' ascension of Sinai to actually meet with God. And now near the beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry, Jesus ascends a mountain to speak. A detail that Matthew includes, so let it be known, that the sermon we're about to hear is divine revelation with divine authority. Who was Jesus speaking to, at least immediately? Primarily his disciples who came to him, Matthew chapter 5, verse 1, but also to the crowds who were in earshot of Jesus as he spoke with his disciples. And then by the end of the sermon, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. How did they discern this kind of authority? I mean, was it, was it the mountain thing? You know, oh wow, this immediately, doesn't this remind you of Moses and Sinai? I love what Jesus is doing here thematically. I doubt it, maybe, but I doubt it. These were still the very early stages of Jesus' ministry. His true identity was shrouded in, in layers of mystery. Plus, Matthew specifically, did you notice this, emphasizes Jesus' teaching. He was teaching them as one who had authority. And church, here is what we've seen concerning the tenor of Jesus' teaching ministry, of his sermon. Number one, Jesus taught with compassion. He knew that many of the people around him were experiencing very difficult circumstances and he truly saw them and he said to them, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Suffering people, do you know that Jesus sees you and he cares about you. And he even intercedes before the Father on your behalf, Romans chapter 8, 34. Some of the mothers here, as Ryan referred to earlier, are indeed suffering this morning. They're struggling. In my experience, moms tend to constantly feel like they're not doing a very good job, even though they are. Did you know that Jesus sees you, moms, in the midst of your suffering and he cares about you and he's interceding for you even right now before the father we cannot give we're giving away a wonderful flower in the back but i'm here to tell you that intercessory prayer from the son of god is superior to what we're providing so jesus taught with compassion and then number two jesus taught with boldness 
Jesus was remarkably bold concerning the high standards for those wishing to follow him and flourish according to God's plan. For example, Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 and 22, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, You fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. And Jesus was remarkably bold concerning his identity. Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them. Check this out. But to fulfill them. Or how about this boldness? You have heard that it was said in the law. But I say, how about that cadence that dots Matthew chapter 5? Or how about, my goodness, Matthew chapter 7, verse 22, where Jesus alludes to his personal presence and activity on the coming day of judgment. Jesus' teaching ministry and his personal ministry seen elsewhere in the book of Matthew, just keep reading in the chapter 8 and also elsewhere in the other Gospels, was this stunning marriage of compassion and boldness, or we might say truth. A marriage indicating very unique authority exceeding the authority of the scribes, who were local religious leaders, particularly well-versed in the law. A marriage that is grounded in capital T, truth. Because Jesus didn't just believe in said truth. He actually is that truth. John 14, 6. Very often with leaders, and this is really important, and I'm focusing in particular here on spiritual leaders, very often with leaders, you get compassion, or you get boldness, Pick one. You get, you know, the grandpa, chicken soup for the soul, sit down while I, you know, make you some tea ethos, or you get this kind of like self-designated prophet of the Lord, I'm about to make it rain, get your business together or else kind of ethos. The first kind of leader writes books like, you know, don't let life bring you down. And, you know, there's balloons on the cover and the title is festooned with, with flowers and sunshine. And then the second kind of leader writes books like, is God about to spit you out the peril of lukewarm living? And then there's storm clouds on the cover and lots of capital letters and, and red font. And actually, and I would say here in the West, we have this tendency to mix religious beliefs and themes and values into this concoction that fits our felt needs, very often veering into one of those two camps. We'll fashion something for self-affirmation and self-care, perhaps borrowing loosely from Eastern traditions, or we'll fashion something for discipline, perhaps borrowing from Greco-Roman philosophy or the fundamentalist edges of various religions. 
Jesus, though, do you see this? Jesus, he, he brought the total package, compassion and boldness grounded in transcendent truth that astonished those who heard him. There's something about this guy. Compassion and boldness that, that makes sense in light of the biblical story, because the Sermon on the Mount is not assorted tips for living well. It's actually part of God's grand narrative that, that flows with breathtaking beauty and cohesion from Genesis to Revelation, creation, fall, redemption, restoration, a narrative that compassionately offers real hope to people who are despairing on account of their sin or or languishing in the throes of profound suffering. And it's a narrative that, that boldly calls us to return to God. Repenting of our sin and trusting in the true King, the Son of God. The Son of God being the preacher and route to the cross that he might atone for our sin and bring his people, those he knows, Matthew seven twenty three, into his kingdom. Everything about Jesus' preaching in the Sermon on the Mount fits that narrative. Which makes sense because he's indeed the Son of God, fully in step with and participating in that narrative, and actually he himself, the climax of that story. And as his teaching demonstrated to the crowds who heard him, Jesus possesses the fullness of divine authority as given to him by the Father, Matthew chapter 28. Verse 18, authority always present with the Son, but fully activated and claimed and declared in the glorious light of the resurrection, the Son fully victorious over sin and Satan. This is a bit of an aside, but it's really important nonetheless given the cynicism we talked about earlier concerning authority and leadership Godly leaders with genuine spiritual authority who are worth trusting will look like Jesus. They will shepherd people who are under their care with Jesus' mixture of compassion and boldness. Boldness concerning both the heart-level righteousness that Jesus calls us to, catalyzed by those three R's that we talked about, a couple of Sundays ago, repentance, resting, and raising up our cross. Boldness concerning the true identity of Jesus, the Son of God, fully God, and fully man. That's what godly leaders do. Questionable leaders tend to camp out in either compassion or boldness, which is a great way to gain Twitter followers and, and build a platform for yourself and sell books and to be completely honest with you, these kinds of leaders often fear man more than God. Godly leaders teach and live with compassion and boldness, grace and truth. Embracing the messiness and the grayness that faithfulness entails often at very great cost to themselves. They exude patience and thoughtfulness in a world of 
of quick responses and hot takes. They fear God, not man. Instead of pursuing prominence, they daily quiet their souls before the Lord. I am so tired, and I mean this seriously, of Christian leaders that, that seem to be pining for influence and for platform and for prominence, a posture that, by the way, is just wholly foreign to the halls of Scripture. If you're looking for a local example of this beautiful balance, since he's retired now, I feel comfortable mentioning Dr. Richard Horner, the founder and now director emeritus of the Christian Study Center just down the street from us. If you ever meet with him, in my experience, he always has two words of encouragement. Number one is something like, I know it's hard, but it's worth it. Keep going. Don't give up. Keep Jesus at the center of everything. Number two, I'd like to encourage you to not be an idiot. Don't neglect your private walk with Jesus. Don't neglect your family, etc., etc. Do you see this compassion and boldness? And also, by the way, quietness before the Lord, not this excessive pursuit of prominence. It's both sad and telling that a lot of you probably don't know who he is. And since it's Mother's Day, so many of the mothers we're celebrating today here at City Church exude many of these same qualities. And it's so encouraging to watch. There is so much zeal for Jesus among the moms here at City Church, and you steward it so well as you shepherd your children, some of them young, some of them adults. Since the authority of Jesus is the headline this morning, though, that's what we're mainly talking about. Consider the extent of Jesus' authority as spelled out for us in Colossians chapter 1. Verses 15 through 20, a remarkable passage from Paul here. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Jesus has authority over all things as creator, authority over all thrones and dominions and rulers, authority over the church, authority over death, authority to make peace by the blood of his cross. This is a staggering list. How compelling is this? We can joyfully follow Jesus in obedience to what he teaches us in the Sermon on the Mount, trusting that his way is best because he created everything and he knows how everything works. We can joyfully follow Jesus in obedience no matter how popular our obedience is politically or how chaotic Global affairs might get because Jesus has authority over all governments and all systems. We can joyfully follow Jesus in obedience by being a part of his people, his church, no matter how choppy and how messy things might get, because Jesus loves his church and he's ahead of it. 
We can joyfully follow Jesus in obedience even in the valley of the shadow of death because we know that he will raise us up again. And we can repent and joyfully follow Jesus in obedience even after we've fallen short of his standards yet again because his grace poured out to us on account of his blood is plentiful enough for all of our sin. Real authority, real application for the rhythms of everyday life, for the glory of God, and as you can see here, our good. We can joyfully follow God in obedience. But will we? Which brings us to the question we'll end our series with here in the Sermon on the Mount. What will you do with Jesus' authority? What will we do with Jesus' authority? That's the message Jesus has been sending the past three Sundays, and here we come back to that question yet again. Matthew chapter 7, verse 28 through 8, 1, one more time. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. When he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. It's very hard to say what kind of faith this might have entailed. But at the very least, crowds of people were genuinely fascinated with Jesus. Fascinated enough to hear his, frankly, very challenging words and follow him. Temper that, though, with what's coming a few chapters later in Matthew chapter 13, in which the people from Jesus' own hometown heard him teach. And while they were also astonished, to some degree, in their own right, they were astonished more in the sense of being scandalized. And their astonishment actually bred skepticism. And they said to themselves, where did this man, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? I mean, we, we know him. He's the carpenter's son. Is not his mother called Mary? Are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not all his sisters with us? Where did this man get all of these things? And they took offense at him. So what will you do with Jesus and his authority? <clears throat> will you follow him in faith? Or will you dismiss him with skepticism? Even taking great offense to what he teaches. There's really not much of a middle ground. If you're not astonished by Jesus, you're not hearing him right. And when you are astonished by Jesus, either you're going to be amazed and you're going to follow him, or you're going to be scandalized and you're going to dismiss him and take offense. And full disclosure, here's how the story, I want you to know how the story continues. Jesus went up the mountain at the beginning of chapter 5, and then he taught. And then here at the beginning of chapter 8, we see Jesus descend the mountain. And then as you read throughout the rest of the book of Matthew, eventually Jesus makes his way up to Jerusalem, and then up farther still to Calvary. 
to be crucified on that mountain. And then he came down via the cross and death and a tomb. But then the Son of God ascended again from his tomb. Rising again from the dead into this glorious resurrection body. Still Jesus, but just a little bit different. At first, at first his, his followers were missing him, but then eventually, oh wait. It's Jesus, but just with this, this new glory and this new radiance. And then after that, Jesus ultimately ascended another mountain to give his disciples the Great Commission. And I'm about to leave you, but I'm leaving you with this authority, basically like the authority the Father gave to me, so you can continue to make disciples. And then Jesus ascended to the presence of the Father, where he remains even now. And then here's the thing. He's coming again. One final descent from the mountain, from the heavenly Zion. That he might judge the living and the dead. And when he does, he will bring his people into the new city, the final resting place, possibly depending on how you read the first couple chapters of Genesis and the last couple chapters of Revelation, possibly a mountainous city, which is fascinating, where we will eternally hear directly from God his beautiful and powerful revelation. <clears throat> and to those who remain obstinate, we just saw this a couple of Sundays ago, to those who refuse repentance, in order to do things their own way and to follow their own heart and to be their own authority. To them he will say, depart from me. I never knew you. Matthew seven twenty three. I'm about to head out um, on Tuesday, actually, and we said this at a members meeting um, but I didn't mention it, I don't think to any of you until recently, about to head out on, a, on an eight-week sabbatical or study leave starting on Tuesday. So I won't, main thing is I won't be preaching on Sunday mornings. We do this every five years at City Church for our pastoral staff for eight weeks. Uh, we do it uh, to do a bit of an identity check to make sure that public ministry hasn't become who you are. And it's very hard to know that and see how you're doing spiritually unless you stop for a minute, unless you hit pause. We do it to do deep study on issues that we feel like we've been called by God to study, but have a hard time doing during the kind of the rigor and the, the rhythms of everyday life. We do it to spend some time with family and friends who often like to be seen on the weekends, but then we're usually here on the weekends. And we also do it to do a 360 review of the church. How are we doing? Where are we strong? Where do we need to grow? To spend time with Jesus examining all of that. And then the elders do the same thing for me. Where am I doing well? Where do I need to grow? And we come back together. We come down from the mountains, so to speak, and we see what's, we see what's going on in mid-July. Plus, we just had our City Church 10-year anniversary celebration uh, a few Sundays ago. So I've been awfully philosophical the past few weeks about our church's calling and our church's mission. And I, I thought about why it was. Why did, I, why did I even get into vocational ministry in the first place? which actually had a lot to do with my time at UF. There was this beautiful thing going on when I was an undergrad at the University of Florida where all 10 campus ministries would gather together for evenings of worship. 
and for evenings of prayer. And what struck me about it is it wasn't about any person. We were just all there outside in the amphitheater. Various people coming up and playing songs and reading scripture. And folks were just there beholding Jesus together. But what also struck me was that there were all kinds of people. You could see it visually. You could see all kinds of people that were walking right past together. Maybe because they didn't know about it. Who knows? I just I remember thinking to myself, I just can't stand the fact that the folks that are walking by are missing out on Jesus and beholding him, enjoying his authority, the compassion, and the boldness. And certainly not everybody is called in the vocational ministry. Most people, I would say, are not. You are called to all kinds of other equally wonderful and beautiful things. But for me, it's like I can't stand it. I want to devote my life to seeing people that are passing by, no longer pass by, but enjoy Jesus, to walk with him, to trust him, and repentance. So my hope, speaking of this choice we are just talking about, you're in really good hands. Thankfully, you have an amazing staff and various leaders in life of the church. I think you're going to find that you're going to be in really outstanding shape. But what I want to say is when I get back, here's the thing that I hope happens. I hope that I hear about more people who used to pass by, no longer passing by. That's going to be my prayer. I get back and I hear about renewal that's gone on in our city, and I've heard about people who, yes, they've been walking with Jesus, but they read that book about being lukewarm and being in peril <laughs> and said, you know what? Jesus is just sort of over there. He's not, he's not the center of it all. And I pray that you would pray that for me, that if Jesus has become even 1% marginalized in my life, away from sinners, that the Lord center, that the Lord would use this season to correct that and to realign me. And I'll be praying the same for you. Amen.